Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 10. Not a long chapter, but I couldn't take it into uh, chapter uh, 11 and 12 tonight. In 2 Samuel uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, they're very significant when you come uh, to the history of Israel. Plus, uh, David's personal life history as a king of Israel. Uh, we studied last week in chapters 8 and 9, and we saw the victories that God had given uh, David. They have taken the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Edomites, and the Moabites. And so tonight, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, two more victories, and that's what we want to look at. Uh, the defeat, David, King David defeats the Ammonites and the Syrians. It's interesting that uh, David has such victory at this time. And I'm going to share this with you. It's because he's obedient with the Lord. He's following the statutes of God. And you can't go wrong when you obey God. You can't go wrong when you take his word and you follow it. It's when you come against the word of God. And so here we are, David's fully the king of Israel. There's no division. The divisions are going to come when we get into 1 Kings, 2 Kings. But at this time, David's reigning king. And the people are getting behind him. Their armies are strong. And that doesn't mean the enemies are not going to come. But when we come into next week, and next, the next chapter, chapter 11 and chapter 12, David makes huge mistakes. He didn't go to the battle. He stayed behind. And then he sees Bathsheba. And we know the story. And yet you can look at another angle. Then Solomon is eventually born. And so God uses uh, the imperfectness of, of man and then to, for his glory, for his kingdom. We see Bathsheba, uh, she's part of the genealogy when you think about that. Now, when we come to David's life, and this is what we were studying with uh, the men at the conference center, and that is in Psalm 139, God is the all-seeing eye. He sees all things. And so God you know, knows what David's going to do, and he allows David to do it because he lets us make our mistakes. And then David tries to cover it, and we're going to see that. And yet God exposes the sins. And that's what we try to bring forth to the men. We compromise and we think nobody sees it. We, we think we got away with murder. We got away with adultery. And that's what David did. And maybe our sins are not as great, but it's still sin in the eyes of God. And so David has to learn these tough lessons. And so we're going to look at this chapter and we see the Ammonites and we see the Syrians. They're defeated. Now, it's very important here because some numbers kind of change. I want you to uh, understand that there's always a reference. And we go to First Chronicles in chapter 19. And we're going to see instead of 7,000 chariots, uh, Chronicles says 700s. And it kind of makes more sense. Now, there's no discrepancies in the scriptures. A lot of times the copyists... Uh, would make mistakes, and so we have to understand that. But let's get into the text now, 
King David defeats the Ammonites uh, and the Syrians. And so 2 Samuel chapter 10, look at verse 1 and 2. It happened after this that the king of the people of Amnon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And you have to appreciate verse 2, David's heart. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, uh, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. And so David uh, sent by hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father's death. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Amnon. Now, we don't really know what the dad did towards uh, King David, but David obviously knows. There's a lot of speculation. I looked everywhere. You can't find it, but David wants to return the kindness. Somewhere, uh, he took care of David, but I want you to see uh, the son is not in agreement, and so notice that he says, I will show kindness, and David's kindness that he's going to show now is kind of reeling off as we studied last week. David showed such kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was uh, uh, Jonathan's son. And David said, is there anybody left in the household of Saul, King Saul? David wanted to bless him. And little did David know, it was his best friend, his good friend, Jonathan. And so he took care of Mephibosheth in the previous chapter. And so David's kindness continues in a sense. Here he shows his kindness towards a pagan king. David is showing us his heart. This is one of the main, not the main reason, but one of the many reasons why uh, we understand that God said of David, he was a man after my own heart. I love David. I love the stories about David. And I get frustrated when David makes mistakes. And then God reminds me, you make mistakes. You make mistakes. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But the grace of God, how he takes care of us. And so David's going to commit uh, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then he's going to have her husband Uriah kill. And yet God forgives him. Gives him the opportunity by sending the prophet uh, Nathan. Now we'll get to that next week. But I, I wrote this down in my notes. David shows uh, his heart because his heart is after God's own heart. And that's that agape love. David had such a respect. And so it's short-lived because he's going he's gonna to commit adultery. But look at verse 3. And the princes of the, pe the people of Amnon said to Hanun, uh, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants uh, to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? And so if this son had any desire to honor David, his men were undermining him. And they're going to come against David. And so you have to understand something. The cultures at the time, nobody trusted nobody. And I mean, David was not, nothing but, you know, the king of Israel, and they didn't trust him. And yet David was a good man. One commentary said this, and it really made me laugh. In the Middle East, it's, a, it's common for liars to always suspect other liars. 
And I was thinking about that statement because uh, we see the people in Iran, they say, no, we're not going to do this, and yet they do it. They blatantly lie, and we give them billions and billions of dollars. And <laughs> Israel's called the big Satan, we're called the little Satan, or is it vice versa, one or the other. Look at verse 4 now. Therefore, Hanun uh, took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle uh, at their buttocks, and, and sent them away. You know, when I read this years ago, I said, this is crazy. But the humiliation part. This was disgraceful and a huge insult uh, to these servants from Israel. They went with respect. They went with uh, you know, trying to comfort the king. And notice what they did. So the men obviously gathered, gathered together and turned the king around. It was a great gesture in kindness, but David. Now listen to this. The culture then, and still in many parts of that world today, this type of act is war. One commentary said this, men would rather die than to have their beards shaved off or half because to be a clean shaven was the mark of a slave, but free men grew and displayed their beards. You know, they did it with pride, with grace, with dignity. And this is the best analogy I can give you. You all know Duck Dynasty, right? Imagine just shaving off half of their beards. They wouldn't be on TV very long, would they? Then I was thinking of our Southwest, and we have a lot of cowboys here, and we have a lot of cowboys in uh, Texas, and imagine if you mess with their hat, come on, or their boots, or their horse, you're going to be in trouble. And so this is exactly what's happening. Now, listen to the Message Bible, because it says here, and they cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and they sent them away. The Message Bible says they cut off their robes halfway up to the buttocks, and then they sent them packing. Now, think about it. You can cover the backside with something, but what are they going to do with their beards? And listen to David's heart when he hears about this now. In verse 5, And when they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. Again, you have to understand the culture. If something like that happened uh, in our Western uh, hemisphere, I mean, basically the guys go, well, you know, might as well shave the rest of it off and let it grow if I want it to grow back. But there was humiliation here. There was shame here, greatly shame. And so it says at the bottom of verse 5, and the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now, we know that the covering and the backside had to be taken care of, but what about the beard? Kyle and Dalich, one of my oldest commentaries, I, uh, I, I love their insight in the Old Testament. They said this, with the value universally uh, set upon the beard by the Hebrews and other Middle Eastern nations as being a man's greatest ornament, the cutting off of one half of it was the greatest insult that could have uh, been offered to these ambassadors or these servants, these messengers. They brought good tidings and threw them to David their king. This is pure humiliation, church. And, and David's gesture 
was warm. David's gesture was kindness. We don't know how the dad took care of David, but he did something that it pleased David. And David said, I'm going to repay it back, and now I want to comfort you. Your dad passed away. He treated me good. And so David sent servants. They come back half-shaven, half of their robes cut in from the midside down. The humiliation. Look at verse 6. And when the people of Amnon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, uh, the King James stinketh, he says. The people of Amnon sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrohab and the Syrians of Zobah, uh, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from the, the Ishtob, uh, 20,000 men. They knew. They knew because they thought, uh, the Hebrew says that, and the King James is correct, uh, David, uh, it's in his mind, it stinks what's happening here. David's angry about this. The Syrians of Zobah were uh, subject to uh, Hadad Ezer. Makkah was in the vicinity of Mount Hermon beyond the Jordan and so I want you to see this, 20,000 men and then 20,000 more people, they feared David. No, no, they feared Israel. And I believe they would fear the God of David, the God of Israel. Now, they knew David. He was ruthless. David was a, a warrior. David was a fighter. David's not going to take this lightly. My question isn't, why did you do it? Why are you tempting the hand of David? He wanted to do a great gesture of kindness, and this is how they repaid it. And so many times, things happen in my life, things happen in your life. Now, because we have the time tonight, I want to take it a little bit deeper. Turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 through 39, and just kind of hang there. I want to read verse 7. It sets it up now. Verse 7, as we are still in our text. And now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. David's preparing. You're coming against me? You're humiliating my men? You're going to have to pay a price. Yes, this stunk in the mind of David. Think about it. David's angry. David's fit to be tied. And so sometimes things happen in my life. Sometimes things happen in your life. Uh, in the time of the Old Testament, it was not an easy task. David was always attacked. But what about the time of the New Testament? We saw what happened to uh, Paul and Silas on Sunday. I mean, they get put in the dungeon. They get beat. Because this girl was, you know, with a foul spirit, and Paul calls it out. But yet God has a purpose. We're going to see Sunday the Philippian jailer eventually gets saved. And so I wanted you to see tonight, you're, you're reaching out to somebody, you're giving kindness, and you're trying to do the best, and then it seems like people turn around and slap you. It seems like it goes unnoticed. It seems like nobody's thankful. Well, Paul wrote about this. In Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. I really liked it. But I like the caption of my Bible. What can separate us 
from God's love. And, and I inserted this. If I'm born again of the Holy Spirit, if you're born again of the Holy Spirit, what can separate us from God's love? We get angry. We get frustrated. We get mad. Things happen that I'm not happy with. You, things happen to you you're not happy with. Everything's going good, then you get laid off from work. Everything's going good, and then the wife and the husband are fighting, and maybe even divorce is spoken of. I mean, these things happen. But what can separate us from God's love? In verse 31, and I'm going to take it up to verse 39, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Especially if you're born again of the Holy Spirit, and especially if you're following God and doing the will of God. In verse 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? When I think I'm being attacked, the Holy Spirit will remind me, look what Jesus went through. And when people are, are not treating me right, people are not treating you right, and then you think about Jesus. What did he say to his captor, about his captors? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus took the time uh, to forgive them. And yet he had all reason to take them out. And the angels were waiting to wipe them out. But he did not touch. God did not allow it. Look at verse 33. Who dares accuse us uh, whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given uh, us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand. And he's pleading for us. That scripture has always gotten a hold of me. He's making intercession for us. That Jesus prays for me. That Jesus prays for you. I want you to think about that. No matter what you're going through. And we've responded to those things. Lord, aren't you, don't you know what I'm going through, Lord? He does know. Look at verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, trials, tribulation, hardship, pain? Listen, or are persecuted or are hungry, destitute or in danger or threatened with death. That's happening right now in the Middle East. Right now, as we speak, trials and tribulations, even to the point of death. And then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. As the scripture said, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered just like sheep. And that's what's happening in many areas of the Middle East. Verse 37, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus. Who loved us? The, the word love here uh, throughout the chapter is agapeo love. Verse 38, and I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels uh, nor demons, neither our, our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power, verse 39, the conclusion, no power in the sky above 
or, or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm flying in the airplane. You're flying in the airplane. You're 30,000, 35,000 up, and then uh, malfunction, fire in the, one of the engines. You got the time it takes to go down 35,000 feet. You're going to die. What are you going to do? Would you take that time? I've asked this question of myself. Would we take that time uh, to share the gospel for the next, what, 30 seconds, whatever it takes, the next minute or so? But we get frustrated. And, you know, these Christians that are dying in the Middle East, I, I just look at them and I say, Lord, what a testimony, what a witness. They get saved in the morning, deny in, you know, Muslim their faith, and then they receive Christ. They die that evening or the next day, or the ridicule that comes. I mean, think about it. And so Paul says, what can separate us? What can move us apart from God's love? What did Paul say himself in, in, in the scriptures? To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. How long does it take? to die. How long does it take to be in the presence of God like that? I mean, we have the whole process. You got to call 911. Here comes the police department. They eventually call the coroner's office, the whole thing. And then if Vacas is backed up or Getz is backed up or the other ones are backed up, then you got to wait. And so two weeks, three weeks. And if it's cremation sometime in California, forget it. You count on your loved one being cremated three months later. It's just tough. But in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Look at verse 8 now. Then the people of Amnon came and put themselves in battle. They're getting ready. Battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, uh, Hobab, Ishtab, and Makkah, uh, were by themselves in the field. So the, the second group is setting up an ambush. The other group is uh, over there by the gate. Uh, David knows these things. And so we have to be ready. Now, to get the flavor here, because here in Second in, in Samuel, we don't get it all. Turn with me and, and just go ahead. Go past First Kings, Second Kings. Go to First Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Now, we're going to eventually get into the Chronicles. The Chronicles are the records kept. The records kept of Israel. The records kept of the kings. The records kept of battles and such. And so they were a little more intense, a little more fulfilling, a little more accurate sometimes because the copyists. But I want you to listen to it. First Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had made themselves hateful to David, Hanun, and the people, they sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen from the Mesopotamia and Arman, Makkah, and Zobah. Now, when you do calculations on uh, the silver, thousand talents, it's a lot of money. That's all I can tell you. You got di different readings that people give you. And verse 7, so they hired, listen, 32,000 chariots 
and, and the king of Makkah and, and his troops who came and pitched before uh, Mid-Eba. And the Ammonites gathered from their cities and they came to battle. All this to get rid of David. But they feared David. And they feared uh, the nation of Israel. They feared them as an army. Their armies were tough. Even still today, do not neglect the armies of Israel. In verse 8, when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. So now David is ready. Let's go back to our text now. The Chronicles tell us that they prepared even greater than what we read in 2 Samuel. And so in verse 9, listen to the wisdom that God gives. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in the battle array against the Syrians. Joab is an interesting character. He's David's captain. His brother was also, he's going to use him in just a minute. And, and Joab, he sees the strategy of the battle. Oh, so you're going to come this way, and these guys are going to come this way. And so he's thinking, and God's allowing him to think. And I like this. Joab is preparing. That's why he's the captain. And so a good leader always has good men around him that are going to make wise decisions, good decisions, or stop you from making a bad decision. That's what's needful. Look at verse 10 now. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Amnon. Now, Joab's a sharp captain. Who more trusting who more shrewd than him, than his brother? Or just as shrewd. They knew each other. And you could trust him. He's going to do. My brother's going to back me up. And the men are going to follow him. And so this is David's army. I want you to see that. Remember when he started with his army? 600 men that David fled with when he was running from Saul. <laughs> and they were not the best, remember? They were... People that were malfunction types. They, they didn't have it together. But David took them. And through this now he has a mighty army. Notice in verse 11. Misfits of society. That's what the word I was thinking of. In verse 11 then he said. If the Syrians are too strong for me. Then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are, are too strong for you. Then I will come and I'll help you. He's talking to his brother. I like Joab's plan. Watch my back and, and you, I'll watch your back, vice versa. Very important here. And, and I think, again, if, if you're in the military, you have a military mind, they teach you these, these strategies, the guys that have been in the military, you can ask. But as I was going over this text, I was reminded, the first time I went to Israel, I went with a group of pastors. And, and the guy that was our, uh, our tour guide was Ronnie Cohen. Now, Ronnie Cohen's an interesting character. He fought in the Vietnam War, but he was Jewish by nature, right? A, a citizen of Israel, but he didn't know it because he grew up in, in New York in the Bronx and such. So after Vietnam, he gets out, and 
he didn't die. He shared his whole testimony with him. He did not die in, his, in, in Vietnam, and he should have. Many times he said. Men around him died, but he didn't die. We hear these stories from others also. And so after he got out of the military, he just went crazy and drinking and doing all the things of the world. And he found himself one day, because he was always getting in trouble, found himself in Israel, believe it or not, and they were going to deport him because he was causing ruckus there. He calls his mom. Listen to this. If you know how the Jewish culture works, it's through your mom's heritage. And so the mom said, they can't throw you out. You claim citizenship through my name, the mom. And he was right. They searched it. And so he stayed in Israel. But he didn't know. Two weeks later, they drafted him into the Israeli army. <laughs> and he's going crazy because he goes, I, I don't want, he liked military, but he was through. So he's sharing with us, and he was talking about how the military prepares and such. And Israeli armies, if you know anything about them, they're, they're one of the best. In my opinion, they are the best, elite forces especially. And so they were talking about one day he was out, uh, and they were doing a patrol, and uh, there was this area of sensors. And so they're supposed to watch the sensors, and when something is crossing, the sensors will go off. Well, they saw a group of 12, and they were coming their way. And they had set up a perimeter. Maybe you know this. They set up a star, and they spread eagle on the ground, and each foot touches the other guy's foot. You back everybody up. And so we're all listening. All the guys are listening. And so now Ronnie ad-libs this. We saw these 12 coming. We could see it on the radar. And we called in helicopters. We called in tanks. We called in airstrikes. And he didn't do that, but he was getting us all riled up. And finally, here they come. They're coming over the ridge. And the 12 turned out to be 12 jackals. 12 jackals. But on the sensor, <laughs> they thought they were going to be a firefight. You know? So these guys were ready, prepared. And I like the concept of the star figure on the ground because I'm looking this way. The guy over here is looking that way. This guy's looking. Everybody's all around you covering your back and your side. And that's the concept here with Joab and his brother. I mean, just trying to take care. And by the way, Ronnie gets saved through the Calvary Chapel Ministries because all the Calvary Chapel pastors that were going and sharing Christ with them, one of them was Pastor Raw, another Vietnam veteran. So, uh, you know, he had a purpose, he had a reason, and he told us he used to cry out to God, why am I still alive? Why is everybody else dying around me in Vietnam and now in Israel battles? Why are they dying? I'm not dying. And so think of the concept. But he does come to saving grace. Look at verse 12 now. Be of good courage. Don't we see that and hear that quite often in the Bible? Be of good courage. And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. The Hebrew is saying, uh, our people or the towns of our God, Jehovah will do what seems to him what is good. And so Joab here, is calling the towns of Israel, 
the towns of God. Haven't we taught many times over that Israel is the apple of God's eye? The Jews are the apple of God's eye? The land, <laughs> Jerusalem belongs to the Lord. They're the apple of God's eye. And even now when Israel is not in a hole, not walking with God, yet God has his hand upon them. And we know, according to Ezekiel 38, attacks are coming eventually in our time, but eventually it'll come. We don't know when. And so, David, there's no fear in this man. Why? He's walking with the Lord. But David trusts God. Joab trusts the God of Israel. Joab trusts David. He trusts his brother. You got my back. I got your back. Now, I want you to listen to the text, okay? In Numbers chapter 13, verse 20, we know that Moses sends out the 12 spies, one from each tribe, and they go into Canaan land. And they were supposed to go and investigate the land of milk and honey. And it was the time of the fruitful season, or the time of, of harvest. And so in Numbers 13, 20, whenever the land, where, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage. Be of good courage. This is a word from Moses that Moses received from the Lord. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And if you remember the text, you keep reading, it took two men with a staff to carry two clusters of grapes. How much grapes were there? Quite a bit. And they had to be rich and tasty, succulent. And so it's exactly what the Lord said. The land of milk and honey. But when God gives you a direct order, when God gives you a prophecy, when God gives you a word, and he gives us the promises in Scripture, you don't think he's going to bring them to pass? This is where our faith comes in. This is where our trust comes in. This is where our knowledge of God's word, it comes into being. And so look at verse 13 now. So Joab and the people who were with him, they drew near for the battle against the Syrian, and they fled before him. Now, here's an interesting text. It does not say that Joab engaged the Syrians in battle. Their army fled before the army of the mighty men of Israel because God was with them. God promised this kind of blessing upon the obedience of Israel. How many times we've mentioned this? Write it down. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see the curses. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, the curses. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 7, kindness of blessings upon the obedience of Israel. Again, I'm not going to say that you're not going to go through trials. I'm not going to say you, you cannot die over here on, on the highway. Things happen to Christians. We know that. But if you're obedient, God's going to bless you. And, and again, going home to be with the Lord, wouldn't that be the ultimate blessing? Lord, I thought you were going to bless me. How come I got hit by that vehicle? How come I'm in heaven? Aren't you blessed? 
I don't think that scenario will take place. You're going to know you're blessed. You're going to know that it was the perfect thing that God did in your life. But the Syrians here flee, but it's short-lived. Look at verse 14. When the people of Amnon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Amnon, and he went to Jerusalem. The others saw exactly what was happening. And so they get fearful and they leave. And I was thinking about this. They gathered all these armies. They spent all of the, that money uh, to buy, to hire uh, extra mercenaries. And yet they are afraid of the nation of Israel. Uh, when we study the Old Testament, you're going to see more and more of this. Uh, heathen nations... Even though they didn't believe in God, Jehovah God, they still feared him. And they knew when God was blessing his people. And they also knew when God wasn't blessing his people because of disobedience, and then they would attack them. And so all the preparation, look at verse 15. Again, it's short-lived. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. They're not finished. The Syrians get ready for battle again. They don't learn their lesson. This reminds me in the book of Revelation. Satan is placed in chains for a thousand years. The Bible says he's released for a season. And he tempts the nations again. The people have been sitting under uh, the government of Christ. They're in Israel. That Satan could be let loose and his demons one more time a season. How long is that? Was it the four months? Three months? Enough to tempt the nations again. There's going to be those that are not saved during the time of the millennial reign. Hard to conceive, but truth. Notice in verse 16, Then Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Hilam and Shobach, and the commander of Hadad-Ezer's army went before them. They regroup. They gather the armies again. Let's fight them. It's not hard to do. You know, let's get, motivate the people again. In verse 17, when it was told Dave, to David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Helium, and, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David, and they fought with him. Now there is a battle. Before there wasn't, but there is a battle. But who are they fighting against? They're fighting against Israel, yes. But you're fighting against God. When somebody comes against you, when somebody comes against me, don't take it personal, because I have. They're not coming against you. They're coming against your God. They're coming against who you represent. And they don't like what you represent. And so they came after the nation of Israel. They came after David. They came against the Israels of, of Israel. The, the, the armies of Israel, but bottom line, they're going against God. 
There is a battle. Now, I spoke about this earlier. In Ezekiel 38, if you know anything about prophecy, it tells us, I believe it's in verse 4, I didn't write the verse, but the hooks will be placed into the jaws of the countries who, who God will allow them to attack the nation of Israel. And they're going to come in against the nation of Israel. Now, there's a lot of speculation. What is God going to use? What kind of hook uh, is he going to use to bring them in? Uh, There are those that are saying now it's the crude oil that Israel has. Uh, Others are saying it's the natural gas that uh, Israel has and they want it. Whatever it is, God is going to allow it because he is God Almighty. And he will stop them on their tracks. And again... Israel is the apple of God's eye. I I believe Benjamin Netanyahu knows these things. I believe he follows the scriptures. But that doesn't mean you sit back and just let everything happen. You try to prevent. I mean, he worked hard that our nation would not uh, collaborate with Iranians. And yet we see our government, what it's done. Look at verse 18 now, and then 19, we're coming to the conclusion. And it says, then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed, listen to this, 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. Now, Barnes notes, another great commentary that I love, uh, he said, this is more like it, instead of the 7,000 charioteers, 700. And he takes it from uh, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 19, uh, verse 18. And listen to what Barnes Notes has to say. Uh, Albert Barnes says, The frequent errors in numbers arise from the practice of expressing numerals by letters with one or more dots or dashes to indicate hundreds or thousands. So it's easy to make a mistake. That's why you go back to the manuscripts and you see, uh, again, what are the chronicles? But the records, the more accurate records, and we'll get to those um, a couple months down the line. But look at verse 19, the conclusion. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace. I like that. They made peace with Israel, and they served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Amnon anymore. And I want you to notice something here. David didn't cut half of their beards off. David didn't cut off their backsides to expose them. David makes peace with them. That that was David's heart. But if you came against David, he was going to come against you. And I mean, David's not finished yet. Now, let me share some insight with you because David should have continued in battle. The battle that's coming up next week is how David gets in trouble with Bathsheba and then has her husband to cover his sin, Uriah, killed. This is a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel chapter 10, we just went over it, or 2 Samuel chapter 10, ends with unfinished business at Rabbah. That's where the next battle's going to be. The offending 
uh, Amorites are still in their city, and Joab has returned to Jerusalem uh, in the spring. King David will send Joab and the army out against to deal with uh, Rabbah as he, David, waits in Jerusalem while he waited comfortably in Jerusalem. He fell into sin with Bathsheba. David made a huge mistake. But again, through Bathsheba comes Solomon. You see, God still works things out somehow, some way. Let me read this last portion here. Some of us know about David's sin with Bathsheba. If you haven't, you're going to study it next week. And how it happened when David waited in Jerusalem, when he should have been leading the battle at Rabbah, Rahabah, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 10 that God gave David a warning by showing it necessary for him to come out against the Syrian. David tried to leave the battle with Joab in 2 Samuel chapter 10, but his army needed him. And God tried to show him that by blessing it, when David did go out to battle, and so in 2 Samuel chapter 10 was God's gracious warning uh, that David sadly wasted. I drew this from one of my commentaries. God warns us ahead of time. God tells us ahead of time. We've been studying on Sunday mornings the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit stopped Paul and Silas in cold tracks and forbid him and Silas from entering into Asia. God wanted Paul and Silas to go to Macedonia. David should have stayed in the battle. I think sometimes we should have stayed where we were at at the time. I I don't know what that is in your case or in my case. But you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we go ahead and do things, and and then they fall apart. We go ahead and do things, and then we get in trouble. And yet, in your spirit, did God tell you to go? In your spirit, did you disobey? When the spirit said no. Now in David's case and, and Silas's case, they were going to Asia. No matter what, God had to stop them. We don't know how he did it. But there was a vision. It was a dream. Was it Luke saying, come over here? A man from Macedonia. You see, ultimately, God will get his way. And sometimes you and myself and my, in our own lives, sometimes God has to... Get a hold of us to get my attention. Sometimes God has to get a hold of you to get your attention. Because we're so good at saying, no, I know this is the way. And I try to wait, I try to wait, I try to wait. Lord, I'm waiting upon you. What is it that you want? Is this the way? Is this the way? And so take heed. We're going to see it come together next week. If David would have obeyed and stayed at the battle, would he not have committed adultery with Bathsheba? Most likely. Then you ask, well, then how was Solomon going to be born? I don't know. But God can do anything. But God knew David was going to do that. God knows all things. Solomon was born. 
So, you know, again, you go back to the genealogies of Jesus and you see the, the women that are in there and they didn't keep records that much of the women and yet they were in there and they all had a background. They all had a background. I love that. Because when we look at England, they want the perfect bloodline. They're all fornicators and adulterers. Come on. It's not about the bloodline. Your bloodline, my bloodline. It's about Christ's blood. It's about his blood. It's about his blood. Let's all stand. We're going to end in a word of prayer. And end with this last song. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word uh, as we're, we share almost every week. Your word will not come back void. It, it pricks our hearts. It, it ministers to our hearts. It, it's that two-edged sword in, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, that it cuts deep. It cuts as it goes in and it cuts as it comes out. And if we allow the surgeon to do uh, his work, which is the Spirit of God, the hound from heaven, in the long run, we're going to be a lot better off. And so, Father, bless your people as they've come. Bless those listening to uh, the CDs later or eventually when it gets on the radio and, and those that are on live stream right now. And, Lord, whatever area of my life, whatever area of, of these brothers and sisters' life, uh, whatever area they're in disobedience of some kind, of some way, Lord, bring us back to the sheepfold. The scripture says that God chastens those that he loves. And so, Lord, that we would get right with you, that we would get honest with you. We're all guilty, Lord. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your unmerited favor. We deserve judgment, but God gives us grace. Bless your people as they've come, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.